we need to love our lives as we're making this change. We can't be trying to make some change by working hard in the same way we've been always working hard or putting our nose down and our bums up and just like studying books to be like, how is this change going to happen? We need to um, read and listen and watch and, and discuss and dance and, and live and experiment in ways that are really embodied. This is I Have My Reasons, a podcast highlighting stories of human resourcefulness, resiliency, and growth. I am your host, Deandra Day. Today on I Have My Reasons, I'm sitting down with my friend Robin McLean. Robin is a podcast host. You can check out her podcast in the notes, uh, Weaving the Future. She's also owner and lead of Tapestry Evaluation and Strategy and has spent a lot of time working with organizations in government, not-for-profit, and social enterprises, helping them change and transform and become more purposeful in their strategy. So today we're going to talk about community transformation and growth. I really hope you enjoy. This part of the room looks very clean, and then you look over <laughs> to the child side of the to the um, house. This is our first podcast in the home, um, which in some ways is really convenient, but on the other hand, I mean, you know, you have a little one. It's like, we're going to have a camera in our house. We have to clean. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which can be a good thing. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to have a reason. To clean. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I always, I, this morning I was thinking... Robin is one of my friends that I don't really give a crap if my house is super clean. I'm really glad to hear that. (laughs) I remember you saying to me, I'm not a very good homemaker. (laughs) (laughs) Though I've been happy this week. My, you know, Doug's been gone, my partner, and I've been, the house has actually been cleaner than it ever is. What Even that like saying? I hire a cleaner. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, I guess it's all him. Even though I know it's not. There's like one fewer person, and like I think I just am spending more time in the evening, being like, okay, I need some alone time. I'll feel better about it if I'm cleaning. Yes. Yeah. I actually like cleaning. I mean, we don't have to go down this tangent, but um, you know, monotonous work like that, and just like doing it and going slowly and appreciating that task when I'm panic cleaning that's not fun no I agree or if I'm doing that and making dinner and trying to parent at the same time that's not fun often I'm just like Doug you take Jasper and I will put on a podcast and clean yes and that seems really nice that's like a treat (laughs) I agree yeah yeah so thanks for being here Robin thanks for having me I'm so excited it's been a long time coming we've been talking about this and um it's been a long time since I've done a podcast episode and I think you're number 10 actually wow really exciting that's special um so I guess I really wanted to have you on the podcast because I I think right now it's really timely um with everything that's going on in the world and your passions and expertise and things that you're, you know, that you're really keyed in about. I like, you know, I think people need to hear what you have to say. So thank you. You're welcome. And, um, so what is, I actually don't even know your, is it McLean, Robin McLean? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So Robin McLean, um, I met Robin through some friends here in Kamloops and instant, I felt like instant friendship when we met. I was like, oh yeah, this lady. She's going to be part of my life because she's so sweet. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Um, 
Well, where to start? So I guess we started today by talking a lot about parenting and and household stuff. So I'll say, first of all, I'm a mom of a three and an 11, 12-year-old. So he'll be four next month. And um, it's interesting because on things that I write about myself, sometimes I find I, I forget that to put in that mother role. And um, I feel like that comes from a place of just noticing how difficult it is to do the other things that I'm passionate about and parent and that it's not always accepted or it's not always, I don't know, the, the motherhood role and the parent role in general is just seen in such a strange way in society. So, like Almost like a given. You know, like you don't mention like, oh yeah, I'm a parent or I'm a mother. Like that's one role that we just, we do leave it out so often, mm-hmm. but it's the most consuming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I've actually been, it's been really neat during COVID to see how many people are just in their homes, showing their homes as they are. It seems like they're being more themselves, including just being like, oh, my, my kid might come in during this call. And having less and less like embarrassment about that. Yeah. And I've been trying to point out, isn't it ridiculous that we've ever been embarrassed about that? Like, <laughs> oh, sorry, my kid's here. Like, or I'm my actually kid's crying. You didn't realize this, but I'm a superhero. <laughs> it's <laughs> like doing all this, you know, amazing work in the world and balancing all these things and also having to think about, you know, how to raise this human. And, and some of that stuff is really like, just using such a different part of our brain, if it's using our brain at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a really good point around COVID that, you know, I, I, I thought about this so much in the beginning, how it pulled us into our homes in, in a different way, um, even though it wasn't necessarily slower because many of us were now at home parenting and working. Family all of a sudden became more of a center again. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to say that that wasn't hard on us, you know, with kids and, and working, but it just changed things. I don't know if it changed things for you, but, um, I don't know. I started being way more active in certain areas of my home life that I hadn't been for quite a while, mm-hmm. like baking, mm-hmm. you know, too. gardening, doing things that I had just kind of thought wasn't as important as like working and socializing and being out in the community. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and so you're a mom. I want so to get back mom. to you. You're yes, a mom. Yes, I tangented. You? No, I did too. You're a mom. What else are you, Robin? Um, so uh-huh. how I've been thinking about myself a lot lately is just someone who's really interested in change and transformation and all of the ways that looks. So in my professional life, for about 15 years, I've been doing program evaluation which is working with people in government, non-for-profit, um, sometimes private business as well, who are trying to make some kind of change in the world, usually change that looks like social good of some sort. And you know, sitting down with them and saying, what are your goals? How do we articulate those goals clearly? And then how do we assess where you're at in terms of meeting those goals? So collecting information um, through interviews, surveys review, just observation, um, and helping them figure out what's working, what's not working, and how can we 
move in the direction we want to move. So the, the, pretty much the minute I discovered that that was a field, I was drawn to it. So I had been doing some research and finding I just liked the tasks, but didn't really like the research world. I find that, um, you know, it's typical to think a lot of research is done and sits on the shelf and is somewhat separate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in the ivory tower. It's somewhat separate from the rest of society. So it's, um, it didn't feel like the best way to make a dent or to make a, a big shift or to help transformation happen in society. And that's what I've always really been drawn to is saying there's things that aren't working so well in the world. So how do we be part of the team that helps make them better? Um, and evaluation has been a really great field for that. Um, and then in the last few years, I would say I'm, I'm more and more diving into, um, I would say diving in or zooming out to, yes, that's one tool, but what are the other tools at our disposal or at my disposal? And trying to say, I can have a professional identity, but it doesn't need to only be about paid work. And Mm -hmm. actually, I don't just want a professional identity. I want to have an identity that encompasses all these different parts of me. And um, yeah, it's... So Robin, can yeah. I interrupt? Is this, yeah, does that look do. like, so when you talk, this is such a cool um, uh, place to go, but when you're talking about like a professional identity and then um, like that, not just being like Robin, the evaluator, like Robin, the change maker, but it's like, how do you integrate that into your actual life in every way? So what does that look like for you? Um Well, one way that I think of it, I recently joined a community online um, called, I think they called it bethechange.org, and it's a social experiment um, with someone named Terry Patton who wrote a book called New Republic of the Heart. He's just bringing people together who are interested in being the change and I guess exploring what that means and what that looks like. So the way that I described myself in that community was to say there was all these things in my life that seemed kind of separate or disparate. And that's, um, the fact that I love going to festivals and ecstatic dance and I'm a musician and, um, and I'm a mother. And, and then I also have this professional identity and I'm really interested in change. And it seemed like being part of this community, I realized just how much all of those things need to and can come together. Um, so another way I would describe that is I've been working on this big theory of how the, how to transform the world, how to transform society. Um, that's my big kind of passion project where everything that I'm interested in is kind of gelling into one so you're, master you're, theory. Oh, that you're, um, you're, um, braining that you're. Creating. Yeah. Yeah. I would say identifying more than creating because uh, it's yeah. more about like, like really deep observation of what's going on in the world and what others are saying and trying to bring it together into oh, like a synthesis. some kind of synthesis. Yeah. Like a meta, meta analysis or yes. meta narrative of some sort. So, um, through that, what's been really neat is to recognize, um, that so much, so many theories of systems change are very, heady they're very intellectual and they're very kind of they might be about recognizing what big shifts need to happen but it seems to be along the same realm of what society already looks like Mm -hmm. 
at least that's been the tradition. Whereas I feel like in the last few years has been more people recognizing what we're missing is actually those, those pieces of myself that I felt were disparate. So what is ecstatic dance bringing? What is the festival life bringing? It's bringing this sense of vibrancy and community celebration and, um, wildness and love and all these things that, um, saying those words in professional places feel can feel really strange. Like I'm trying to do it more and it, and then at some points it has felt like it doesn't fit, but I feel like more and more there, there's more and more of us saying, Oh, that's what we're missing. And if we mm-hmm. don't take that sort of that part of life into account when we're looking at how the world needs to shift, then we're missing probably some of the biggest elements. Totally. And when you say that, you know, Robin, the first thing that comes to mind or the first word that comes to mind is embodiment, right? So Mm. we, what you said around a lot of these approaches have been very intellectual or cognitive and, um, you know, also being an artist and, and, and actually going through this process right now that you're speaking about of like integrating my art identity and who I am as a musician and an artist, and then who I am as a counselor a mental health counselor and a podcaster, instead of having all these separate identities, it's like, what is all of this, right? So this idea of art and culture and um, community through art and culture, like you're talking festivals um, and through experience, like experiential um, pieces of life and embodiment, those, those have been so often pushed to the side and we've looked at okay, how do we change this through economic policy? How do we change this through social policy? Mm-hmm. We haven't looked at these other components of life that if we were to really think about have been center stones to our communities since we ever known, like since, you know, the, the time that people have been documenting. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, art, culture, celebration, food, dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I really like that connection of, of, I guess I like the simplicity of saying a lot of that is about, is about embodiment. So the, this clue that if we're only using our brains, that it's probably, that we're probably not, um, living in a really full, in a full way, like we're meant to. Yes. So, um, yeah. So like going back to this idea of my big theory of what needs to shift in the world and how we do it. That's a big part of it too. One of my major um, theories, sub theories of the big theory is that we need to love our lives as we're making this change. We can't be trying to make some change by working hard in the Mm -hmm. same way we've been always working hard or putting our nose down and our bums up and just like, studying books to be like, how does this change going to happen? We need to, um, read and listen and watch and, and discuss and dance and, and live and experiment in ways that are really embodied. Mm-hmm. And I still obviously don't have like the answer of exactly what that all, how that will all unfold or exactly where to start or what to do. But I feel since I've been digging into it, a sense of, um, I guess, eagerness to keep digging and, and a really deep down sense of peace that 
we know what we need yes as as people and we've really lost touch with our inner voices mm-hmm. and our, our intuition and that's that's really the path back and it feels it you know there's so much so many awful things in the world it feels there is an urgency to go out and do something to to fix it so we can't just sit in our houses and meditate but you know I guess that's kind of a paradox and yet it's not like we do have to start with finding our inner voices and then I I feel like we need to take that take what we learn regularly and live it Yes. And feel what it feels like to be living from that place of our inner voice. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So hopefully I can learn to do it more. <laughs> so, you know, I can I can speak it really beautifully and then I live my life. And sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. I would say it's there definitely um, more than it used to be. And I'm really grateful for clues and teachers and like examples I see in my life of people who, like you who are who are kind of living that living that question as well trying to yeah always and and the the thing is is that it's an it's an everyday it's an everyday thing you know it's like it's never just okay I'm gonna live this way or I'm going to um live an embodied way and, and connect with my intuition like I know on the surface for some people that might be listening that sounds like maybe a bit cheesy or a bit flaky but I like to use the word instead of intuition because maybe that feels inaccessible to some people. This I this word or this phrase of sense of knowing, right? So there's a mm-hmm. there's a sense of knowing that we have within us, and um, when we experience trauma, lots of times we can disconnect from that sense of knowing because we start to not trust ourselves because we've had challenging situations that maybe we couldn't predict or we didn't, we felt like somehow they were our fault. And so we disconnect from that sense of knowing. And when you think about what's happening on a a global level, like in regards to like trauma or impacts, it's like, it's really easy right now to not connect to that sense of knowing that we have because there's so many distractions as well, like through our phones and through, there's ways to dissociate from our lives. But I I would say that the number one thing that we need to do is actually just be aware of what is in this moment. And that's not necessarily like sitting at home meditating, but if we can be honest about where we're at as a society, as a community, that's how we start to make the change because we're being honest about what's not working. And that's actually a really difficult thing for a lot of us, whether that's in your own relationships or what's not working in your life through you. But if you can start there in that honesty and then dip into that, okay, but what is it that I really long for? Or what is it that I really want both in myself, in my family and in my community? Those are the questions to live every day. And then it takes a lot of courage to start to live that. So I, I um, but that is, that is the change, right? And then what you had talked about is um, another word that came to mind is it attuning to pleasure, right? So we, so when we think about, okay, we need to make a difference. Like let's put our head down and be productive and research and, and like that feels overwhelming and that feels like no fun. And if it sounds like burnout to me <laughs> as it does for many people, Um, so how can we do that while attuning to pleasure and greatness in our life? Because 
through that pleasure and fully living, like you said, that's where we're going to feel inspired to continue to live in these ways and to make the change. But if we're pulling constantly from a place that there's no resource, because we're not filling up ourselves, our souls or whatever, however you want to say it, we're not going to last in this, in this transformation of community. Mm-hmm. It's really beautifully said and such, it's such an important lesson. And I feel like the way that we've been taught that we've been shown and told we're meant to live is so different than that. And so my experience um, from hearing that message of you deserve pleasure and pleasure is protest and then trying to live that way, it's so amazing to see how much guilt and confusion comes up when I do it. Like I, this past month I turned 40 and I, I was so, I mean, even this word shows how I'm seeing it. I, I was so indulgent. <laughs> like I, I asked for what I wanted. I got what I wanted and then more. And then I gave myself more. And I'm getting emotional just talking about it because I didn't allow myself that in the past. And it's just so sad that we're all doing that to ourselves and to each other. And it wasn't even huge things that I was doing. I was just, you know, taking a little bit more time off of work and taking time to be in nature and taking time, um, you know, a little bit of time away from being a parent um, because my husband's away now and he knew that it would help me to (laughs) have some time on my own. And, um, yeah, taking time to think and meditate and write and read and all of those things and yeah the interesting thing is some of those things that I did costed money but most of them didn't yeah just time yeah and intention yeah yeah so um there is actually a book called pleasure activism oh cool yeah have you read it I've read pieces of it that's kind of how I do this (laughs) Do my research, I realize I I have about six books on my iBooks that I've been reading for a couple of years now. And I just flip them open. I take in some things and I I spend a lot of time integrating. And I, I, as I've been doing this project of, you know, a big theory of change, I keep finding myself telling myself, you need to sit down and do more research. You need to make sense of those things. And then sometimes I do sit down and I'm like, and I, I have organized what I've kept track of all along. And I'm like, I learn through osmosis or diffusion. I learn slowly and I integrate slowly. And all of it has has come together into something that I've made sense of. It's I'm not like fire hose (laughs) I'm not like taking all the information in by fire hose and like some people are super good at that Mm -hmm. my partner is amazing at just plowing through learning a ton and coming out with lots of learning on the other side and that's how he works and I love working with him for that reason but um I've recently had a conversation with somebody who said um she's in the community of practice that I mentioned and she said you did a presentation, you presented all these huge ideas or a piece of them, and then you retreated and you didn't feel the need to like 
invite people to more or say what was next or, you know, so I have this impression of you, Robin, that you can let things gestate. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's such a different way of looking at it than me who thinks I'm procrastinating or confused or like not really sure what to do next and feeling scattered about it. Um, but really I just haven't been in a huge rush. I want it to come, you know, we kept kind of stretching the, the gestation and pregnancy and giving birth metaphor and kind of saying, I want that baby to come out when it's ready and in the form that it's meant to. And yeah, so that is, um, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think too, you're an extremely thoughtful person, um, just from my experience of you. And so that doesn't surprise me that, that this is your approach to, um, what you're synthesizing and, and what you're, you're trying to, um, offer to the community in regards to an idea of change and how, or an idea of how we might go about transforming our community. Um, one of the things Robin, you said that I wanted to talk about is, you know, you, I can't quite remember what it was that you said, but we were talking about, um, like living from here and not, or that we have the tools and we know, we know how we need to, to do it all. Right. And, and so one of the thoughts that came to mind, and I acknowledge that things aren't always linear, but this idea of evolution, right. And so when I think about where our, maybe our parents or our grandparents were at, um, you know, they needed to be in the productivity um, survival mode. Well, maybe they didn't, but they were right for the, for the way that the society was set up, and and because they were there, because they did that, right. So I think about my my grand my grandmother. You know, she they didn't have a lot of money. They were um, quite poor. They had a lot of focus on survival, and even throughout my mom's childhood, that's it was always like gardening and doing all these things, and so it had to be very productive, and there was no there wasn't enough time for these types of ponderings or um, conversations because they just needed to get food in their bodies and, and survive. And then I think about where we're at now and now we actually have the space. So this idea that like, maybe we've been in that cognitive productivity stage because that's where we needed to be. And before that, maybe it was more that we were, um, as human beings, more like uh, celebratory or, or connected to the land. And, and so we've gone through this place of being more connected to the land and more community-based and celebratory. And then we've gone into the stage of uh, human existence where we've been highly productive and the agricultural industrial revolution. And then now we're at this place where we have both this cognitive capacity and then we're all being called back to this place of, okay, now we have to connect back to the land and what do we need to do to feel connected and to heal the earth and to not heal the earth, but heal with the earth. Um, yeah. So that maybe this is just a stage in evolution where now we've had those tools, we've kind of separated, we went into this more cognitive place and now it's like, okay, the next step is integration. We have the technology, we have the knowledge, the ability to study, to research. And then now we're going to connect into those more ancestral places of like dance and embodiment and, and, that connection to the land and our ancestors and, and in doing that, that's the next, the next place. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a really, actually a really nice way to look at it. And some people seem to feel like 
either humans are a parasite and this is the way we're meant to be is is parasitic and not helpful for the earth and not in tune with it um with her and um you know there's a, i think there's a few different theories floating around about it um or that maybe just that we've kind of gone off the rails and we need to actually fully go back to the way we used to be and i i'm more along the lines of what you're saying where it's like there's things that we've learned now i feel like we've kind of not just seen but lived like how how much separation there can be mm-hmm. and recognize that this isn't what we want and this isn't good for anybody involved, including the people who are, you know, swimming in riches because of it. <laughs> you know, and when I, I always, I'm constantly thinking from this place of human development, but when we look at children or humans in general, um, we always have to brush up against boundaries or, um, there's natural consequences, right? That's how we learn. And so, you know, Joni's going to jump on the couch until, you know, and I'll say to her every time, don't jump on the couch, sit down, sit down. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't until she jumped on the couch, fell off and hurt herself. Well, now she's cautious to jump on the couch. So that might sound simplistic, but like if we were to apply that to a broader, you know, societal perspective, it's like we have, yes, we've, our pendulum has swung. We've focused a lot on money, productivity, resource extraction, um, information, external information, sorry, um, um, consuming external information. And we're kind of, we're hitting a boundary where we're, and you know, we have a a virus that has now come up because of, you know, all of our travel and all of our overly globalized world. And, um, that's a sign there's, there's other limits that we're hitting, right? Like fuel limits and economic limits. So I think that this is actually quite natural for us to hit this, this limit and go, Oh crap, that's not what I want. And we have to learn from it. And that's how we learn. That is how we learn. Mm -hmm. And it's how we've always learned. Mm -hmm. And other animals learn that way too. So I just like to see it as a natural process and, and yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable and you know, we've done some damage, but it's how we learn. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's a really good way to look at it. And, um, I think it's also important not to over idealize it and, and, and not assume that it's linear because I think that I have also seen some people point back to societies that had similar obsessions with, with riches and external things. And, and, you know, people are talking about right now as the sixth extinction, um, which is a book that I haven't read, um, but what is that? The idea that there's been extinctions in the past of the human race, like the Mayans and I can't remember the other cultures that they list, but, um, where we can see in the world, a lot of relics that are from those cultures and evidence that they sort of went too far and then were wiped out or wiped themselves out and that we're on a similar trajectory. And again, to me, that's another theory that's like good to keep in mind that, Mm -hmm. you know, if we don't fully understand what has been done and in the past and what mistakes were made, that we run the risk of just assuming we're different and um, 
that things will just sort of flow as they're going to flow and everything will be okay. And I, I don't, I don't feel like we're, we're doomed and I don't feel like we can just sort of sit back on our laurels either. I feel like these, the middle ground, if you can call it that is more like what you were talking about of recognizing we've hit a limit and we've also come really far in other ways. So how do we use what we've learned and bring all of those things on board to bring about the change we need to see? And doesn't that just feel better? Like you say that, right? And just as you say that, there's a there's a burden that's lift off lifted off my shoulders when I think about transformation because or change in our communities because we talk about it. A lot of us talk about it, but it feels like it's too it's too much. Like it's, it's a, it's something that we can't actually do. But when you say it in that way, Robin, about accessing the resources and the, the things that we have done really well, uh, there's something empowering about that. Like, okay, yeah. Okay. We're not all bad. We're not all like screwed up and we haven't messed it up so much that there's no, there's no going back mm-hmm. or there's no going forward maybe. Mm-hmm. So I I have a question. So in your theory of change that you're um, synthesizing, I'm interested in on what you would say around um, like what are some of the simple things or maybe not simple things, but what are some of the things other than like attuning to pleasure or um, dance and festivals and and like living your life? What are some other things that um, people can like work towards or, or try? Um, so one of the first steps for me, I feel like I've implied this already, but I'll just say it in a yeah. slightly different way, is really tuning into our inner knowing. And to me, part of that is about healing and recognizing the traumas we've had and where we're dissociating, as you mentioned, and being able to engage fully in what is here and what is... Um, what's happening in the world and what's happening internally. And another piece of that, the kind of the outcome without being too sort of utilitarian about it, to me is about finding each of our geniuses. And mm-hmm. genius is a word that I've heard um, Michael Mead use. He has a podcast and he has a number of books about this, that it's not about you know, a handful of really smart people. It's about something that's inside each of us. That's like the gift that we've, that our soul is meant to give to the world. And it's a really beautiful concept. And it's one that, um, to me, is a way forward into transformation. And it's also the way our world will look and feel when we, as we get into this new way of being and living. It's about recognizing that there's not just a handful of ways to be exceptional in the world, the way that sort of the society tells us there mm-hmm. is. There's not just you can be rich or you can be beautiful or you can be really smart, you know, and th- there's more than that. But it, there is a simplicity right now to what we accept as being, um, you know, ha- having status or the best way to be. Whereas I think a more true way for society to function is we're all living our truths or living living the the way our soul wants to sing out or express itself and um that that those things will very naturally all the different souls and geniuses will very naturally work together in a way that um creates a harmony that the world needs 
So the more work we can do to, to tune in and say, what is conditioning to, that tells me how I should be living my life and what I should or shouldn't be doing and what is actually my soul saying, this is what you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a really simple quote I remember seeing on Facebook years ago that was like, don't ask what the world needs, ask what you want to do because the world needs more people that are doing that. And I didn't get that quote exactly right, but Along it's that, it's that basic idea. So wow. that's, that's one, I feel like that's one simple step. And I feel like the difference between, I used to kind of get confused by this paradox of should I be out there working in the world or should I be meditating in a cave and like like really in, in my university days was studying like I studied philosophy and psychology and political science and it was like there's like a couple of really different theories of what's the best life to live and this idea of of self-healing or self self-work or enlightenment I think is the word I'm looking for always seemed to come down to divorcing yourself from society renunciation and and I always rejected it and um what I've really come to is is embodiment just as we've talked about that there there is a whole lot more um enlightenment tuning in meditation inner work that I can do as an individual like I'm one that tends toward kind of being in the outer world and not tending to my inner needs as much as I, as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of us like that. And I yes. think there's maybe some people who tend the other way. Um, and I think we all need to kind of try to find that middle place where we're doing our inner work and then we're going out and living it mm-hmm. just as we've, we talked about earlier. Yeah. And you know, as you're speaking, Robin, it's it, for those that are listening, it, sometimes I can feel inaccessible, like doing our own work, um, or overwhelming or that it's not as important as say doing that outer work, like going to work or, or attending to our family. But when you really think about it, the way that we engage with other people in our environment and in our communities is highly impacted by the way that we engage with ourselves. And for so long, we've disconnected these two, like you could be a certain type of community member and then, you know, you could treat yourself when no one's around really poorly. <laughs> but the, the, the reality is, is that the way that we treat Mother Earth, the way that we treat um, people that don't have housing, um, the way that we treat people of different cultures and different um, races and skin colors and sexual orientation that is a, a reflection of your openness and your ability to accept that which is different and to accept um, the discomfort in our lives too, right? So our inability to also be present shows up in how our economic systems are set up and how our social systems are set up. So they're not separate, not separate at all. And you have to start first with yourself. And we've so, I know, um, me personally as well, I've so often just like pushed aside this idea of like living your passion or, you know, I say it in this voice because for so long I'm like, Oh, it's such a crock of shit, right? Like you just gotta Mm -hmm. make, you know, make a good life and like have good friends. But when I work with people in counseling and I've been through this journey myself, it's when we're depressed or we're anxious or we're, 
you know, not well, not well. And there's so many different variations of what not well might look like in regards to like mental health disorders or whatever. Um, so often it's because we're not connected to ourselves. We're not connected to, we, we're not connected to what we really want to do, or we're not living the things that are important to us. And they don't have to be your job either. So when we say living the things that are important to us, so I'll give you some examples. Recently, I've been doing a lot more with my creative self. Um, and I've, I've ebbed and flowed with my music in my life. You know, I went through periods of time where I actually didn't do any music and I was fully in activism mode. I was, um, president of the students union. I was like (laughs) planning rallies and doing all sorts of activism. And I was really angry to be honest. Like I was a very angry activist, (laughs) had a megaphone, um, felt really like, really angry and like, I'm going to make change. And then I was not doing any creative practice. And what happened is I ended up having this like anxiety, panic attack, like ongoing anxiety. And then I started going to counseling and realized that, you know, my counselor asked like, what do you do creatively? Well, I'm like, it's been six years since I've picked up a guitar and sang. Mm -hmm. And so I sang for my counselor one day and she was like, no, no, like you have to do this. And I'm like, yeah, well, music doesn't make a lot of money. It doesn't, it's not. And she's like, no, you don't have to do it for work. You just got to do it. And so now when I'm working with people, one of the first questions I ask them is, what do you do creatively? And people, oh, I'm not an artist or whatever. And, and then as we dig a bit deeper, someone will say, well, when I was a kid, I used to play piano. And I, uh, when I would play piano, it would be really timeless. It's like I, I, it always made me feel good. Or someone will say, I used to do cross-stitching a lot. Or I used to, I mean, it goes on and on. And you're like, well, when's the last time you did that? And when I encourage people to get back to some sort of pleasureful, creative practice, sewing, doodling, whatever it is, they'll come back within a couple of weeks and there'll just be a sense of ease within themselves. And that's not even looking at like, say the anxiety or the depression or the trauma. That's just helping them connect to themselves through this creative practice that's free flowing and open. Right. So I just wanted to speak to that because when we talk about living what we need to live, that doesn't necessarily mean occupation either, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so hearing you talk and um, what we've talked about so far makes me want to go back to the question of like, what can we all do as mm-hmm. people? And like, what are the next steps for transformation? And one of the major one of probably the most important things for us all to do is to get into a space of being able to collaborate with each other in a way that we're not necessarily used to right now. So the the term I'm always using lately is transformational collaboration. So being in a space where we can learn with each other and learn from each other and bring our true selves together to say, what do we have to offer in such a way that the whole is different, greater than the sum of its parts. And there's so many opportunities for transformation that come out of collaboration from people who are actively in their genius or in their healing spaces. Not that we need to be healed or already in our genius. It's just people who are living 
living in those questions the way we talked about. Um, and I've, I've come to notice how different I approach my work, which is in the outer world and is, it's not activism in terms of rallies and protests and fighting against the system, but it's trying to kind of either change the system from within or create kind of new systems that will slowly mm-hmm. <laughs> make the other ones irrelevant. And I'm really, I recognize that the most important thing is for me to do that work in a calm loving, spacious way so that every interaction I have, I hope that people come out feeling inspired and calm and, and recognizing that they're okay and that they're more than okay and that there's, there's a light inside themselves that they want to see burn brighter and that, that, you know, those things can come out in even the smallest of interactions and, I remember coming to that conclusion really early in, in my sort of adult life as I was kind of searching for what my place was. And I, I was like, oh, I have to find the thing in the outer world that's the most effective. And I remember feeling a calmness, just being like, you know what, you'll find it. But in the meantime, just, just be good in everyone that you interact with, and that will create a good ripple. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that's going to be enough if that's all we're doing. I think we also have to pay attention to the bigger systems and the bigger picture and really understand in a, in a, in a um, kind of global way where we're going and how we need to get there. But we can't only do the inner work and we can't only do yeah. that, that global work. So to me, it's about um, the phrase that I've heard said more often lately is whole systems change. And that's usually referring to like, we need to look at the economic, education, criminal, like all of those systems all at the same time. And that's true. But I think the other systems we need to look at is the system within ourselves and the systems within our families, our communities, our friendships. And um, one phrase I really like that I feel like captures this in a really simple way is move at the speed of trust. So when you're out there doing work in your community or in well, really any type of work that's with people, and most of our work is, don't try to force some agenda or some change or even if it's something that you, that we all feel or know needs to happen by leaving people behind. Yeah. Because that's we need to embody what we want to see in the world as we're doing those changes. And I think yeah. that's a piece that's been that's been missing a bit in sort of classic activism yes. and that I'm hearing, um, I have never really been in those circles, but I'm kind of listening in through different podcasts and things like that. Um, I'm hearing that there's a movement that's trying to heal the resistance movement. And I'm, I'm, I think there's so much there yeah, for everyone to, to learn from. Yeah, and I just said need to do because I'm like, yeah, yeah, we need to heal that. Just having been obviously not necessarily in some of the movements that are happening right now, but having been in other social movements in my younger days is that there's there's this justification that kind of sits within these movements that like violence will somehow beget peace, right? That that through being violent in our resistance that that's how we're going to get 
deep change. And I know that this is a very controversial thing to say. And I acknowledge that because sometimes it feels like we have to be violent um, to be heard from systems. So like when I'm talking about violence, I'm talking about like destroying things and stealing things and, um, you know, hurting others because we feel like the cause is bigger. And, um, I just, even though that might get us some change in in small increments, I just, I don't think that that is the way because violence does not, Mm -hmm. does not bring, being violent in the name of peace is not integral. And I'm not saying that we have to sit back and like meditate, but there's ways if we look at certain cultures and certain movements, there's ways that people have been active and providing resistance that is peaceful, that is celebratory, that is um, art-based, that is, you know, and I think about actually the first thing that comes to mind is First Nations people and Indigenous people where resistance has always been through song, through prayer, through, um, you know, peaceful roadblocks. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I know it's a it's a complicated issue right now. There's a lot yeah. of resistance going on in the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've I've thought really similar things, um, and I've also tried to think the or think or feel those things in a way that's not judgmental mm-hmm. of anybody who is um, in the Fed uprising, as I've heard it called, uh-huh. because that's that's completely reasonable and rational to. Just be so angry and fed up. And I've and I've been in that place, like within personal relationships, or you know, and on a macro level, recognizing what's wrong with the world. I've been in that place, and I think there is a there is a place for anger, and I've started calling it sacred anger, to recognize like this is a way for me to and us to exert boundaries and say this is not okay. And I think it's fair. It makes a lot of sense that the way that that anger will come out can be spiky and violent and, and, um, and it's not, I've, I don't know. I'm of two minds on one hand. I'm like, it's not for me to say what is or isn't okay for people who have been so marginalized and so, um, who, you know, I can't even wrap my head around how difficult the conditions of their life have been um and how hard it is to get out of those conditions because of all this systemic bias and um and I think it but I also think that that you know I also completely agree that at the end of the day there has been amazing examples of resistance of I think about I listened to a podcast of with people that were really um, deeply trained and and practiced in Kingsian nonviolence, so from Martin Luther King, from that thread, and studying for decades now what that means to resist and be firm in that resistance, yes. but also not go to a place of of letting that anger overtake or or that or it being violent. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Thanks know. for saying that, Robin. I, th- I think I, I also want to acknowledge that I, I too agree that I, I don't, I don't know what it feels like to be in that place of, oh, 
of oppression and um, like being trapped by systems. So I acknowledge that people, you know, are just doing the best that they can. That is that is a belief that I I, I really hold dear to my heart. Is that you know we're always doing the best that we can, um, and not from a place of judgment. I guess where what I'm actually speaking from is a place of fear when I talk about that, like a space of a place where I get scared that it's just going to become really violent, right? Because when, um, when resistance is violence and response is violence, then I get fearful of war. And so I'm not speaking from a place of judgment. I'm speaking from a place of fear around like what's happening in the world. And, um, but I trust, I do have faith and hope and trust in the fact that, you know, we are, we have the capacity to evolve and change and that, um, from this will come because it will be transformed. That anger that is, is showing up maybe through more violence, um, will be transformed in some way. And then I also want to acknowledge that sometimes the way that we see what's going on is curated by the media that we have. Um, so I don't really know what's going on in the front lines cause I'm not mm-hmm. there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. And obviously I'm talking about the, where I'm like, I'm personally talking about like the black lives matter movement and you know, we called it the fed up movement, but, um, this is really big stuff that's happening right now that we can't dissociate from. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I've started recording a podcast mm-hmm. and I'm slowly sharing episodes from people who ask. And one, actually one of the reasons I haven't really dove in, recorded more and advertised is because I knew a lot of people doing podcasts or other sort of public figures during, during the month of June that just didn't release anything, um, because they wanted to uphold BIPOC voices, which makes a lot of sense to me. And, um, I also just felt a sense of paralysis of like, I don't know how to be in this conflict. I don't, I, I'm scared of so many things, like the way that you talk about it. I'm scared of things getting to that place where I feel like my security threatened and where I, where there's a constant, and I mean, this is the case right now where there's a constant sense that so many people's securities and livelihoods and um, safety and everything is threatened. And um, I was also just scared for my own sort of what if, you know, there's not really a right way to be white right now. Yeah. Because it's, you know, and I'm not saying that from a, from like a complaining point of view, just more of a, you know, we need to feel how deeply uncomfortable it is. And I just have a sense that um, I'm definitely not doing enough to fight against it. And um, I don't want to be performative either. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's like that there's all these things of like, how do we... Um, how do we move forward? Yeah. <laughs> and what does it really look like? I, there was a huge thing that happened um, in my world, I think it was last week, where there's this podcast that I've been following as this sort of beacon of light. It was called Healing Justice and changed oh, yes. its name to Irresistible. And it was, the host was a white woman 
who had been in movements for a long time, and she regularly in, um, engaged, interviewed um, people of color, and um, the, the whole project seemed to be a beacon of light. This is how we all move forward, and this is what allyship, allyship looks like. Um, and then a week ago, I, I found all these articles calling her out as being terrible. <laughs> and I mean, not terrible. Um, I don't know. That's kind of, I'll, I'll just say more. Like she basically was working in a way that was, was not being an ally and was, she brought on a couple of employees and, um, basically just wasn't supporting them in the way that we all need to be supported as people and, and yeah. people working. And um, the way that it all kind of got called out was that there's there's some elements of white supremacist culture, like urgency, and um, there's a few others. And I saw the, these embedded into articles kind of talking about what this kind of work environment looked like. Um, so what is urgency? Is that like the productivity? Exactly. Yeah. The productivity mindset. So this, so, I mean, the way that I sort of understand the situation, which isn't, it's not one that you could look at her and be like, she was totally taking advantage of people of color and like making herself look good. I don't think that was her intention, but the way that everything played out, you know, it came out that one of the people of color wasn't making as much as someone else. And then it came out that she was asking for work on weekends and not like, just like not supporting a restful, spacious work culture and was putting pressure and not listening, not creating spaces for feedback when she obviously needed it. And there was a couple of other things that were even like more. And it just sort of, it was just like, I wrote to a couple of friends was like, I'm having a crisis of meaning. Like, is it even possible for me as a white woman to do work around, um, social and economic justice? And, and, you know, we're getting into working, um, in the work that I do in Kamloops in the region and working with indigenous communities as well. Is it possible for me to do that work in a way that's, that's, that has integrity and that is truly supportive? And I, I just had this, I had this moment of being like, is it possible? Should I, should I even be doing it? And, you know, I had, I I work with some amazing people and I, I think the answer is, Yes, and be super careful and super reflective and super slow and super thoughtful. Thoughtful and integrated. So as you're t- like as you're as you were telling that story, I'm like, what it sounds to me, what what I'm hearing too is that this this podcast and this woman had this that's that community work, right? So she's out in the community working in this one way, yet the integration of that way isn't happening in her business or in her personal life. So I, it just brings me back to what we've said. It's like, you have to live it in both in all the ways, right? You have to be self-reflective. I shouldn't say have to, sorry. I think that one of the the ways that we can move forward is through integration of, um, this reflective, mindful, um, intentional life in all aspects. Like we can't just be performative or be one way outwardly and be different, to ourselves or in our homes or in our businesses. And so, yeah, that's, that's really what's happening here. And we're 
people are getting called out in not, in not being integrative <laughs> or not being integral or um, however you want to say it, congruent, maybe is the best word. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's scary in the sense that like it can be de- um, demobilizing, is that a word? Immobilizing. Mm. It could be immobilizing because you're like, ah, should I even, should I even try? Because like there's, there's a possibility that I'm going to screw it up and I'm going to get called out or, um, so that is a, that is a, a culture that's showing up right now, this call out culture, this, um, but again, like, I guess the thing that is hard for me is, is the judgment in that, the the judgmental piece of it, where we're being so hard on people as well at the same time. Like if we're going to bring light to certain issues, we re- it would be really helpful if we were compassionate as well and understanding that the humanness is experienced by all of us mm-hmm. and that the people that we're calling out or being critical of in the way that they're behaving, um, they also deserve compassion because when you think about when we judge people or when we're critical towards people, we don't actually support healing. We just support self-hate, more self-hate, more self-criticism, which is, immo- is again, immobilizing for people. So it's like when we're, when we're being really critical in general or when we're, being, um, we're questioning things is probably a better way. I just, I'm hopeful that we can start to be more like gentler in that. And I'm not saying not firm, like, Hey, that's not okay. But we just need to be cautious to, to not, um, again, just create more hate. Yeah. I've come to that same conclusion and I've, um, you might tell, I listen to a lot of podcasts by my references. Um, Brene Brown's podcast is really wonderful. And she did a solo episode in the last few weeks, Um, So maybe at the end of June, that was about shame, guilt, and accountability. And her basic, the basic thing she was really putting forward is there's no place for shame in the in movement. Yes, that if we truly want change, we can't make people think that they're that is a way they are and that they can't change. It's beautiful, Brene Brown. And yeah, she's just so. I keep saying she's, you know, a little bit annoying, but yeah. really awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, <laughs> I've had a I hard mean, time with her. I, I say annoying just because, I don't know, there's some things that she overdoes and she's, yeah. but she's just so herself yeah. and she's so authentic and she's so funny and, mm-hmm. and her truths are so well researched yes. and then clarified so clearly, which is a rare thing to find in people that dive really deep mm-hmm. and then can just boil it down to something that we can actually access yeah. and learn. That's so amazing. the idea that we we can't we we can't shame people. I know you avoided the word can't, but it's like if we truly want change, it's counterproductive. Yeah, we can't to shame people. Can we you, can't. Yeah. How, what does accountability look like? That that and I've gone through this with my partner actually recently, where there were things that I was I've been so unhappy with in the years that we've been together. Um, and, you know, it's nothing huge, it's nothing big. I'm still with him. I love him. Um, and and yet there's been things that he hasn't been able to hear from me because of a deep sense of shame, I think, in himself. Um, so I've had to be very firm but kind in how I bring it to him. And I've learned it as possible. And 
hard. Yeah. <laughs> because I haven't, you know, I, 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 as the way that I am as a, you know, compassionate person, I think I've backed off of it a number of times because it, I could tell it hurt him. And finally I was like, yeah, but who's hurting? It's me mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So, so how do I just say, I still love you. You're a wonderful person. And this other thing is going on. And if you don't look at it, we can't change it. Yeah. And there's things I need to change and things both of us have changed. But at the end of the day, here's something we need to look at. And it's actually not the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> like we can, it rarely is. <laughs> and we can support each other through that. Or like, I'll love you through that change as well. Uh, yeah. And you know, and when we shame, you know, when we shame our children, when we shame our partners, when we shame people for their beliefs or for their actions, that's when we create this dichotomy. We create this polarization because when we shame, if you just take it back to like, if you were to shame your child or your partner because they did something, the response is always defensiveness. It doesn't matter how much personal work you've done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're going to respond with defensiveness most of the time. And when people go into defensiveness, they're not open to hearing anything they actually go into a place where they hold more onto what they've done and their beliefs. And so when we look at what's happening right now um, in, in the world, like around politically, there's a lot of a lot of dichotomy happening where you're in one camp and you're in the other camp because of this shame and defensiveness. And then we just have more polarization, way less conversation where you know people aren't even speaking because they're scared that they're going to mess up. And if they mess up, then they'll be shamed publicly by the person they're speaking with by not being politically correct or saying something wrong. And then, then we don't have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then that is actually the absolute worst thing that could happen right now is for conversation to be shut down. And it's happening because people are ashamed or scared to make a mistake because yeah. the culture is so unforgiving. And you know, it's one of the reasons why well, I was, I haven't done podcasts for a while. Also because I've, I've been doing what you're doing where I've just been like, okay, what do I do? Like, I don't want to be performative. I don't want to speak on behalf of people. I don't want to go into a place of victimhood or shame mm-hmm. for being white. Um, and then also like, how are we going to tackle this conversation on the podcast? Right? Cause it's so obvious. Like I'm, I'm not willing to do podcasts where we don't have these conversations, but how the are we gonna? Call, mm-hmm. How are we going to navigate this area that is so full of shame and guilt? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, but we're doing it well. Yeah, you're, I was just gonna great. say. I was just gonna say. We're and I think I I, I want to pat us on the back, and yet that's that's like feels uncomfortable. But really, I, what I think we all need to do, what I think we've done, we've tried to do today, is just feel our feelings around it. Yeah. And speak what we're seeing and be vulnerable and maybe take a risk if there is a yeah. risk. And, and maybe mess up and maybe do something that you're going to look back at and think like, oh, I'm, I don't actually believe that or mm-hmm. I wish I didn't say that. Okay, well, that's where the learning comes from again, sure. right? Like For we sure. have to do things sometimes that we don't mean to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I, I mean, this makes me... Um, I think I always, as I live my life, bring things back to the, the theory of how yes. we move forward. So to to have like a clear path forward with it, to me it's about 
becoming really clear on the difference between guilt, shame, accountability, boundaries versus call out. Like Mm -hmm. that is a very different thing and practicing that. And I brought up the example of my relationship to say that was actually, that was a really big learning for me and for us. And I think I was able to, to continue to do that work because I could just see how that learning will serve me in all of the relationships I'm in. And that is, I've often marveled how interesting it is to be in a, like, you know, it's a male-female relationship, and then we're a couple of years out from it now, but the Me Too culture and that call-out culture and that, I mean, it's still happening, obviously, the the dynamics and gender-wise, um, there's so much to learn in our personal relationships among men and women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our community, I feel like, I've done a lot of deep conversation with men and women about what it means to relate to each other. What can we learn from working through those things and being authentic and trying not noticing defensiveness rather than letting it take over Yes, and um, identifying being able to hear people as well as to speak. You know, and that's, that's hard. That is hard. (laughs) That's a practice. Yeah. Because as a woman, sometimes I'm just like, yeah, but, (laughs) you know, I, obviously you've done more wrong than me or whatever. (laughs) Like I find, I have found myself doing that. I found myself going into victimhood. Yeah. And really tried to own that. And it's been a journey. Like it's been a huge journey. Um, And I'm still on it and probably will be my whole life. Yeah. Um, There's no end game here. But living that question, to me, this is this idea of how we relate to each other. One part of it is transformational collaboration that I mentioned earlier, but we're not going to get there without doing deep collective healing as well, which is, you know, we do our individual healing and we bring it out into the world and then we repair relationships in a really deep way. And that, to me, is one of the pieces that feels scariest most vulnerable especially when I try to think about what does that look like in my personal life but especially what does that look like in a work setting to start to speak about the deepest shames and guilts and um, inequities that exist and, you know, when we're working in community, that's going to happen. So my, the challenge that I've given to myself, kind of recognizing in an intel, intellectual way that that is one of the ways forward for us to transform the world we live in, um, is to, you know, gently <laughs> push myself to, to, to bring those conversations, to learn how to facilitate them, to learn how to be part of them. Yeah. And um, there's a lot to learn, but there's also a lot to learn from. There's, you know, I, I always think about restorative justice as as one of the examples that has kind of existed through all the mud <laughs> of, of society. And it's been sort of a bright light that I've looked to, again, through my adult life. It's like, I just want to be in those rooms and learn more about that yeah. and see it in action. And my master's thesis, I studied a, a, a drug treatment court, which was called the Edmonton 
Drug Treatment and Community Restoration Court. So it was really about um, people who had drug addictions who harmed the community they were in by, by stealing and lying and manipulating, you know, stealing from their families at times. Um, they had a community of people who were in the same kind of addictive behavior that they were, but they just weren't living in a place often where there was trust and love. And I think a lot of them felt a deep shame of like, how do I get back to... How do I get out of this? Authentic connection. And the the program combined um, social work and social support with a court-based approach of like having lawyers meeting with a judge every week. And um, basically if they didn't graduate, if they didn't like try in the program, if they didn't do what they needed to do, and they went to jail. So there was this like very firm boundary set yeah. of like, you can't use drugs while you're in this program and you can't lie and still manipulate. You know, there's a little bit of room, you know, we know that you're trying or like that it's not going to be perfect. You're not going to change overnight, but we have to see that you're genuinely trying and to see how this group of people, lawyers, social workers, um, you know, me as a whatever, researcher, we would sit in a room before court every week and just talk in depth about where all of the participants were at and how best to help them. And um, I just saw a transformation is possible. And people can apologize, make reparations. And generally the people I saw that that took that, that program on and, and started to build those trusting relationships slowly but surely as they participated, came out just with such a desire to give back. Like that was like the phrase, give back. I want to be the best person I can be and I want to continue to make reparations for the damage that I've done while I was in my addiction. Mm. And I want to you know, take responsibility for that and also know that it, that I was struggling. Yeah. And to me, that's, it wasn't restorative justice exactly, but it had a lot of those elements. Okay. I think we're, we're um, getting to our time here. There's a little one outside. <laughs> there is. But I wanted, um, I just want to sum that up. So Robin, or maybe not that, but one of the things, or not one of, there's many things we talked about today, but I think the main kind of theme that I'm seeing or um, that maybe people can take away from this is that really the first place, the first place is to start with you, like with yourself. Um, And we're all in different places with that. But if you can start to live these questions and start to look at yourself and how you're behaving and how you want to to live differently and embody the life that is actually going to feel pleasurable and whole and meaningful for you and your family and working towards collaboration with even just starting with your friends and your family. Like this is where you start is here. And then you can start to do the community-based stuff. But just remember that this place starting here and healing yourself is very fruitful, very impactful, and very, very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin, you mentioned your podcast, but can you tell us the name of your podcast? It's called Weaving the Future. 
So it's on Spotify now and hopefully will be on Apple soon. Okay. I'm having some trouble with it, but. Okay. And so I'll link that in the show notes. And then are you on Instagram? Um, no, you're not. I personally am. Okay. Yep. Okay. What are you and on Instagram? I'm if you Robin, want to follow you. Robin and Kamloops. Robin and Kamloops. Yeah. Okay. We'll link that. And then um, Weaving the Future is probably the best place for people to stay connected with you. Hey? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I would say so. Yeah, I, I feel have. like we might have to have a part two of this conversation. I would love that. I really do think that because um, it's so thoughtful. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me and for your amazing work and thoughts and being. <laughs> mm, it's a pleasure and it's a pleasure to share in community with you. It's inspiring. Agreed. So um, if Robin has inspired you today to start living some of these questions, please, please go check out her um podcast weaving the future it's a beautiful podcast and uh, robin has a lot to offer so uh, maybe we'll have her back i feel like we will thanks Sandra. thank you well there you have it what a wonderful conversation with robin mclean um you heard her you can check her out on instagram you can check out her podcast which will be linked in the show notes uh, we have a video version of the podcast with Robin up on my YouTube channel, Deandra Day Therapy. And if you're interested in counseling services or working with me individually, you can check out my website, deandradaytherapy.com, or follow me on Instagram, deandra.day. And I uh, just want to say thanks for making it this far in the conversation, and I hope you have a wonderful day.